freezing in here, right? <laughs> it's cold, and it's freezing outside, and the idea of walking through the snow, traipsing, like dripping wet, is not very enticing. Well, fear not. We have changes of clothes for you to get baptized in. The full deal. I think maybe you're thinking, but my friends and family aren't here. Fear not. We have FaceTime, and we have <laughs> cell phones that can record the entire thing. You've got excuses, I'm going to keep knocking them down. Maybe you've heard that this tank is freezing, because it has been, but I want to tell you, fear not, because for the first time ever, we have a heater. <laughs> the warmest place in this building is this tank right here. I think I'm going to find some of you guys like chilling out in the tank after this service. It's finally the hot tub it was designed to be. So I'm not going to give you the hard sell, but I will say this. If you feel that tug on your heart, at any point during the message, at any point during the worship, you can head back to our Connection Center. Little plug, we do have a Connection Center to help you get plugged in here. Steve Van Poolen is back there. Even if you just have questions and you just want to say, tell me more about this. By any means, by all means, head back there at any point. And like I said, I'm not going to give you the hard sell, but something that has helped me tremendously in my life. When I find there's like a voice inside of me stirring me to do something, and then there's something else that's kind of maybe whispering things in my ear, I like to ask myself, is it fear or wisdom that I'm listening to right now? Is it fear or is it wisdom that's saying I should or shouldn't do this today? So turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, while you're turning there, I want to give you a little context on what we're about to read. The Corinthians have believed the gospel. They have changed their life, but they have these issues that have been arising within the church, and Paul is sending this letter, and he's correcting a lot of these distortions. He talks about judging apostles and their work in chapters 3, 4, and 9. He talks about lawsuits in chapter 6, prostitutes. The man delivered to, be, to Satan, that's a spicy one. The passing away of this age, discerning the body, chapter 11, and spiritual gifts. And now he gets to the crux of the issue. Chapter 15, these final chapters, he kind of sums up the whole thing and just says, you need to come back to the gospel. You need to remember the good news that you believed. So why don't we do this? Here at Crosswords, we like to stand for the reading of God's word. You guys can sit for mine, so if you're willing and able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Starting in verse 1, now brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel you're saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you've believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to Scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. That's a polite way of saying some have passed away. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last he appeared to me also as one abnormally born, for I'm the least of the apostles. I don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was within me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you have believed. It's the word of the Lord. You can grab a seat. 
So today we're going to look at a couple things, a little road map for you. We're going to look at the point of Paul's message, and then we're going to look at some alternatives to that message, and then finally some practical implications of the message. Okay, the point of the message, alternative messages, and some practical implications if we really believe this. So let me ask you, if you were from Michigan here, kind of born and raised, I'm sure that you have had the same experience that I have. Have you ever taken someone from out of state to see Lake Michigan? What's their response? It's almost always, it's been the same every person I've brought there. Their eyes get super wide and they all say the exact same thing. This is no lake. This is like an ocean. It's not that people don't know what a lake is, right? They have a concept in, in their mind of what a lake is. Okay, it's like an enclosed body of fresh water. Got it. But Lake Michigan is just too massive to fit inside that normal-sized perception. I think as Christians, we should experience the gospel the same way. Oftentimes, I find that we have this reduced, normal-sized perception of what the gospel is, and we try to just reduce it to, like, the Roman's road or future grace. The gospel, yeah, that's what tells me that I get to go to heaven when I die. And I don't want to say that those things aren't true, but I do want to say that we need to expand our perception so much bigger. The gospel is all-encompassing. It's so much more than that. The gospel is more than just, I get to go to heaven. There's no way today that we'll even be able to cover the full scope of the gospel or Paul's message, but I hope that our perceptions can be enlarged just a little bit more each time that we hear it. So look at verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you. Pause. Who's he wanting to remind of the gospel? I'm hearing it. The Corinthians, awesome. Absolutely right. Look at the verbiage, though. Who does he call them? Brothers and sisters, right? These are Christians. These, it's not that Paul's talking to his extended family here. Like, he's just got a lot of brothers and sisters. These are Christians adopted into God's family, and he wants to remind them of the gospel. I think the gospel, if you are coming in today, and I think like many of us, we think the gospel is just something that we believed at camp all those years ago, and maybe it doesn't have that much relevance into my life right now, our perception needs to be expanded. The gospel isn't for unbelievers. It's for us too as Christians. It's for every person in this room. If you are here today, the gospel is for you. You never outgrow it. It's one of the moral, mental concepts that we need to enlarge. Growing up, everything I heard about the gospel was just evangelistic. The gospel is that thing that leads you to pray the sinner's prayer, and then you're able to move on to like the meaty doctrines and get away from the milk. This couldn't be further from Paul's message. Paul's understanding of the gospel, Paul's message was that it was for all of life, you never outgrow it. Look at verse 1 again. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. That taken verb there, in the Greek, it means a past event, that ongoing implications, continuing to go. The gospel is what a Christian builds his or her life upon. All our behavior, all of our thoughts, everything inside of us should spring from the gospel. It's the guiding reality for our lives. Let me give you an example from Paul's life. In Galatians, Paul confronts the Apostle Peter. It's kind of this cool thing that we get a chance to see recorded for us. Paul, just right in front of everyone, 
confronting Peter face to face. And he confronts Peter on being bigoted. He confronts him, but he doesn't just go up to Peter and say, stop being a racist. Stop looking down on the Gentiles because you're Jewish. What does he say to him? He says, Peter, you've forgotten the gospel. Your, your way of life here is not in keeping with the message of Christ. You've forgotten that you were an outsider too. And that you were adopted into God's family. You've forgotten that all are made in the image of God. Peter, the gospel should be informing how you're living your life. Even the Apostle Peter, right, the rock that the church is going to be built on, still needed to be reminded of the gospel. So unless we're further along in our Christian walk than the Apostle Peter, I think we need the gospel too. It's what I mean when I talk, it's what we mean here at Crossroads when we talk about that penny dropping from your head to your heart. It's when the gospel sinks from just this concept in your mind and it goes all the way down into your heart and it begins to change all of your behavior. The gospel speaks to every area of life. Let me give you some examples. In our work, in our work today in this city, there are people who are sacrificing marriages, sacrificing their relationship with their kids, sacrificing their health, all just to be a success in their careers. The gospel tells us we don't have to clamor to be on top. We don't have to clamor to be the most powerful, to have all the status, because Jesus sacrificed his status that we could be raised and become co-heirs with Christ in the kingdom. In our relationships, how explosive are our fights with friends and families? The gospel tells us we don't have to fight to have our way. Because we have a Savior who didn't fight to have His way, but He laid down His life for us. We can love because He first loved us. In our hearts, the gospel tells us we don't have to beat ourselves up. We don't have to listen to that voice of shame that whispers in our ear all the time. You'll never measure up. You'll never measure up. Because Jesus endured the shame of the cross. And he adopted us as sons and daughters, beloved members of this family, that even when we don't measure up, we have a Savior who bleeds for the unworthy. The gospel should impact every area of our lives. Let me say it differently. The gospel isn't the starting line for us. It should be the epicenter of all that we do. Its effects should just ripple out into all of our life. The gospel should be sending aftershocks throughout our life that change every part of our heart and soul. The gospel is not something you know. It's something that you experience and it changes you. That's why Paul continues. I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved. The gospel gives us the power to stand and it houses the power to save. It should be, like I said, the epicenter, the very center, the core of us and all that we do. So just to recap, the gospel is not just for unbelievers. The gospel is for Christians too. And moreover, it should be at the very center of all that we do and say. Look at verse 3. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to scriptures. And that he appeared to Peter, Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me as to one abnormally born. 
And when I first read this, I thought Paul was giving like the facts to prove his case. It reminded me of a fight I had, a disagreement I had with my wife earlier this week, um, where she told me that I didn't tell her something, and I was convinced I told her. And so I immediately like pulled out my phone and started to check the text messages to prove that I had I had told this to her, which was when I made two big mistakes. One, that was really petty. And two, my phone must have deleted those texts or something, because <laughs> something's wrong with these iPhones, I'm telling you. But is that what Paul's doing? Is he trying to like prove his case? If you don't believe in the resurrection, go ask these 500 people that all saw him. I mean, maybe. I, I don't think that he's not saying that, but these Corinthians had already believed I hope they had already done their fact-checking. I think he's reminding them that the gospel is more than just a philosophy. It's it's not that a Christian has hope in a theory. Christians have hope in a very real person who was born in a very real place and who died a very real death and was raised in a very real resurrection. It's not faith in the idea of Jesus that saves you. It's faith in Jesus. It's not faith in the details about Jesus that saves you. It's faith in Jesus. A very real, very alive Savior who died and was raised, resurrected in power, who sits at the right hand of God, interceding on your behalf right now, in this instant. That's what saves. Look at verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Whew, let's dive into that for a second. Sins. That we are all sinners is a horribly unpopular sentence in today's culture. It's kind of like about as well received as if you walked into Marie Katrebs and started talking about how delicious gluten is. Like, people don't want to hear it, right? People don't like it. It's just not very popular right now to talk about sins at all, and yet the gospel, the good news, most certainly entails the fact that we're sinners. We have sin. So let me say this really clearly. The Bible, the entirety of Scripture, not just Paul, the entirety of Scripture says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no one righteous. No, not even one. We need a Savior. We need atonement for our sins, the Bible teaches. We need a covering to come over them. Something to cover them and make us right before God. And while that may be unpopular, I want us to think for a second. I think instinctively we know this is true. It's why we try to cover ourselves in designer clothes. Successful careers. Big bank accounts. Or maybe we go to the other extreme and we try to cover ourselves by not wearing fancy clothes or not having a big bank account. And we're minimalists who haven't bought into those consumer things and we can look down at other people. We're always trying to find ways to be unique, ways to cover our inadequacies, ways to measure up. We're trying to cover our inadequacies because deep down, I think we all know that we don't quite measure up. Unless. And that unless is a big one. Let me draw a few alternatives, a few other things that we run to to fill that unless right there. Paul says Jesus died for our sins, but I think a lot of us are still caught up in the trap of trying to make ourselves right with God by finding other ways to cover ourselves. 
So the alternatives to the good news, some of them, if the gospel means good news for the covering of our sins, what are the false good news as we look to? I think our hearts are constantly pulled and drawn to these messages of our culture and our world. I see a wakeboard boat and I'm immediately like, I need that. I will be so much more fulfilled if I have that. I don't even live on a lake, but I've got to have it, right? We're bombarded by false gospel news messages every day. Do this and you'll be happy. Just do this and you'll fit in. Just do this and you'll be acceptable. Whether it's consumerism, right, that says buy this and you'll be likable. The American dream, success will satisfy. Just get a little more. Get higher up that totem pole. Weight loss plans, look good and everything else will follow suit. Your kids. When my dad was dying, I remember him looking at me and he said, I've done a lot of bad stuff in my life, Bran. A lot of bad stuff. But I know I'm going to be okay because I had you and you're good. And in that moment, I did the most kind thing that I could possibly do to him. I sat him down and I told him all the bad stuff that I've done in my life. Because he needed to know that I can't be his savior. But to him... He was looking for something to save him. And there's a lot of us that look to our kids. If my kids are good, I'm good. We need a real Savior. For those of us who hear the gospel and our eyes just kind of glass over, oh, we're talking about the gospel again. Jesus died for sins. I get it, I get it, I get it. And our eyes are a little glassy and it's just not really hitting our hearts. The penny just, it's in the machine, but it won't drop down. My speculation is the stuff that's gumming it up is there's already a false good news that you're looking to. And it's blocking the penny of the real gospel from fully dropping down. There's already something that's captured your heart's attention that says if you get this, if you just keep going a little further, if you just go a little deeper, if you just try a little harder, if you just get a little more, then finally this thing's going to pay off. Then finally you're going to be okay. We all worship something. We all worship something. There's an atheist. His name's David Foster Wallace. This guy does not believe in God, but he gave an address at a college when people were graduating, and it's one of the most profound things that I've read. Here's what he says. It's a little bit of a lengthy quote, but I think it's worth it. Because here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. Remember, this is coming from an atheist. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everyone worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason, this is the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship. Be it JC, Allah, be it Yahweh, or the Wiccan Mother Goddess, or the Four Noble Truths, or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if there where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel like you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, and the skeleton of every great story The whole trick is keeping this truth in front of your daily consciousness. 
worship power and you'll end up feeling weak and afraid. And you'll need ever more power over others to numb your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll always end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious, they're default settings. They're the kind of worship you gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. And the so-called real world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings. Did you catch all that? This is an atheist admitting that we're always worshiping. The only control you have is where you aim that worship. And his response, he says, whatever you choose, apart from a form of God, I would argue that only Jesus is the, op- is the option that would satisfy He says, whatever you choose apart from that will eat you alive. It will demand all you have to give and in the end leave you with no real return on your investment. We worship something. Success, friends, looks, power, money, people pleasing. No matter what flavor you look to, you'll be made a slave to it. David Foster Wallace says it won't deliver like Solomon. In the end, it'll be meaningless. The gospel, however, is the exact opposite. The gospel is about how God doesn't enslave, but God became a slave, became a convicted criminal, and paid your debt so that you could go free. Your career isn't going to die for you, I guarantee it. Instead, what it's going to do is produce in you fear, pride, or despair. Fear that you'll never measure up. Fear that you'll lose what you've gained so far. Pride when you survey all that you've built when things are going well. And when things are going really bad, despair. If your gospel is, try to be a good person. I try to be the best me I can be. That's what I do. That's the best that I can do it. Who determines if you're succeeding? If it's other people, you'll always bend to their will and you'll live your life trying to please everybody around you wondering what they want and not what you should do or you'll try to compete with them rather than love them if it's yourself that determines it you'll love your you'll live your life looking down on others who don't have the same willpower that you have or you'll be crushed by the weight of your own expectations i worry that even as christians many of us take some of these false good newses, these false gospels, and we try to combine it with Jesus and form this kind of mixture that can't really satisfy. Let me give you an example. Look at verse 9. For I am the least of these apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believe. One twist on the gospel that Paul was always fighting, that we still deal with today, is this idea of Jesus plus hard work, Jesus plus good deeds, Jesus plus moralism. In fact, there's an old seminary professor at Princeton named J. Gresham Machen. And he wrote this thing in his commentary about Galatians, but it pertains to this passage too. And he says, people get the order wrong. 
the order that Paul's talking about in his message wrong. Paul talks about being saved when we believe on the Lord Jesus and then being transformed to do good deeds. But there's constantly teachers that are coming into the churches that Paul's at and they say, yeah, yeah, Jesus, believe in Jesus and be a good person and do what the law requires and then you'll be saved. Believe in Jesus, get circumcised, eat kosher, and then you'll be saved. Believe in Jesus and this. And it's not even so much about what they're adding to it, it's that they're adding to it. They get the order wrong. They say, believe, do, and you'll be saved. The gospel order is believe, be saved. And then out of gratitude, you can respond. These aren't nuances. This is a major, major difference. In fact, I would say it's, it's almost completely separate. But there's a lot of preachers and a lot of pastors that have actually gone to pretty big extremes. One of them is Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he goes so far as to say that he thinks 90% of those who believe in Jesus follow the disordered belief, the disordered path. They think deep down, they measure their spirituality. We measure our spirituality. Am I I close to God or am I far from God? And it's based on our performance, not Christ's. It's based on how we're performing. Did I read my Bible today or did I not? Let me give you a story to help maybe illustrate it. This is not in the Bible. Let me repeat. This is not in the Bible but it's an apocryphal tale of Jesus and his disciples. And the tale goes a little like this. So Jesus, one day, he wakes the disciples up early. They've got a long walk, and he says, I want you guys to go pick out a rock, and I want you to carry this rock for me. And so Peter knows it's going to be hot today, and he knows it's a long walk. And so he goes by the stream, and he grabs this tiny little pebble, and he slips it into his pocket, and they go for his walk, and he's thinking, got it. They get about halfway to where they're going and they stop for lunch and Jesus says, all right, take out your rock. And everyone takes out their rock and Peter's got his little pebble and poof, Jesus turns it to bread. And he says, here's your lunch. And so Peter like eats this little nibble. And then Jesus is like, all right, pack it up. We're going to keep walking. I want you guys to go find another rock that you'll carry for me. And so Peter's like, he's starving. He doesn't care that it's a long walk. He doesn't care that it's a long day. He goes and he finds this giant rock because he's figured it out, right? And so he carries, like, just lumbering this giant rock along, and they get to finally where they're going, and Jesus says, all right, everybody drop your rocks. Let's go. Keep going. And Peter's stunned. And Jesus looks back at Peter, and he says, Peter, you don't understand. You carried the first rock for me, but you carried the second rock for yourself. How often do we live lives like this? where we think we're doing these good deeds for God, but it's really we've got the order wrong and we think that we're doing them for him, but we're doing them for ourselves because we think the good deeds are what's going to save us. We think that we have to contribute to this. The message of the gospel is that Jesus has done it. Drop the rock. Stop carrying a rock for yourself. Stop trying to be a good person. You get to do things in response and gratitude and carry a rock for him if he asks it, but stop doing it for yourself. Do you see the beauty in that message that says, it's all Jesus. My burden is easy and my yoke is light. You don't need to perform. I've already done it. I've performed perfectly for you. And I've paid the debt that you don't have to pay now. Do you see how that metaphor changes everything when it's at the epicenter of our lives? 
It changes how we deal with failure because we realize we don't have to be perfect. God made him who knew no sin, him who was perfect, to become sin so that we could become the perfection, the righteousness of God. That's 2 Corinthians 5. It changes how we deal with rejection when we remember that Jesus was rejected so that we could ultimately be accepted. Matthew 21. It changes how we deal with loneliness when we realize that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not height, not depth, not angel, not demon. Nothing can separate you from his love. Not a bad day or a lack of reading your Bible today or not going to church this Sunday. Nothing can separate you from his love. That's Romans 8. It changes how we deal with sin when we realize we don't have to wash ourselves with these false good newses that can't really clean sin, but that Jesus has washed us. He's purified us. He's cleansed us. That's why baptism is such a joy. That's what this represents right here. Being buried and being washed with Jesus and being raised and empowered by his spirit. This is the good news. This is the message that changed Paul's life. This is the message that led him to endure stonings and to go from church to church speaking it and proclaiming it. Why? Not out of obligation, not to carry a rock for himself and pat himself on the back and become the super apostle that everyone looked to. He rejects that all the time. That's why in the end of this, he's like, whether it's me or someone else who preaches it, it's the gospel. Crossroads, like the Corinthians, we need to remember the gospel for all of life. Remember, remember, remember Christ and what he's done. And then we can take that message out of gratitude to our families and to our communities. Maybe the first step for one of you is the baptism today, where you can just put that stake in the ground and proclaim that message to all of us. Let's pray. God, your news truly is good news. There's such freedom. I know that I can't do it, God. But the fact that you did through Jesus and you've paid our debt, it's just too much sometimes, Lord. I pray that you would open our perceptions, open our eyes to see how big and how deep and how wide your love is for us and that we would then in turn love others because you first loved us. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.